Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Have you ever noticed that conversations about religion and politics often produce more heat than light? I'm convinced that because most people are aware of this, they tend to be more reserved about their deeply held convictions. And as a result, small talk rules the day. This state of affairs didn't bother me at all before I converted to Christianity, but when I discovered evidence that the story of Jesus had actually been written centuries in advance in hundreds, if not thousands of different ways throughout the Hebrew Bible, I couldn't help but talk to others about it. However, I quickly realized that conversations about Jesus are sometimes awkward and uncomfortable. Whereas some people get irritated and change the subject, others throw various objections and challenges your way. So how can we discuss our deepest convictions with others in a way that ends up producing more light than heat? On this episode, I'll be talking once again with my good friend Greg Kokel, this time about his latest book, Street Smarts, which he wrote to help and encourage Christians to discuss their faith with others in a winsome and tactical manner that avoids many of the common pitfalls that so often derails the conversation. To get the ball rolling, I first asked him to explain the meaning behind his title, Street Smarts. The street is any place that you feel uncomfortable with regards to communicating your convictions as a follower of Christ. If you think about uh, just in general being in the street, hey, that can be scary, it's dark, it's dangerous, you've got criminals or whatever, you don't worry about it if you know how to handle yourself. If you're some kind of kung fu expert, you know, or you got a gun right. or packing or whatever, you're not concerned about it. And the idea here is very similar, and that is you're not frightened to go out into the community that we are sent into to make a difference for the cause of Christ, we're not afraid of the test if we know the answers in advance. Right. And the same thing here. If we are equipped with the tools that we need to be able to engage in a thoughtful and a gracious and a compelling fashion, it simply is not going to be as frightening. And this is the goal here. Let's get more Christians street smart in the theological apologetic sense 
and more people are going to go and engage the way they need to engage for the sake of the kingdom. You know, Greg, the subtitle of your new book says that you use questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. Now, there's an obvious overlap here to your tactics book, but for someone who's unfamiliar with your approach, how do questions help answer various challenges? Well, uh, as you mentioned, the way we maneuver in conversations is by using questions. And one of the reasons questions are so important is because questions keep you safe. Mm. I mean, a lot of folks, as I mentioned, they're intimidated by the spiritual street, as it were. And so they don't get into play because they think they're going to be vulnerable. And if you're making statements about your own convictions, of course, you're going to be vulnerable because people can just gainsay the statements. They can say, that's not true. And off you go into an argument that most Christians will not be able to manage well in. But if you're asking questions, you're not really taking any burden on yourself. You're probing and trying to draw the other person out to find out what they think and what they believe. And that's actually the first couple of steps. First step is just to gather information with some form of the question, what do you mean by that? In fact, that was the question you just started with. <laughs> you know, you're asking me, there you are relaxed. You're not vulnerable because you're not making any claims. I'm doing all the heavy lifting, but you're in the driver's seat of this conversation because of the questions you ask. And that's another advantage to questions. Also, we want to know not just what another person believes, but we want them to have more clarification of their own view. And see, this is something Christians haven't thought about a lot, but I'll tell you, in my engagements with others, it's been a stunner to see that most people who offer challenges to Christianity really don't have a very good grasp on their own view. Right. So when you ask them some form of the question, what do you mean by that? They don't know how to answer you know, they might just repeat their statement. No, I, I just want more information. Help me understand whatever. And it gets them to question their own views. I call that putting a stone in their shoe, yeah. you know, annoying them in a good way. The next step, of course, is once they do clarify their view, is you want to know their reasons for it. And so it's appropriate for us to say, okay, now I understand your view. Help me understand why you think your view is true and then see what they say. And don't be surprised if you get crickets again, because they haven't thought this out. But what we're doing so far in the first two steps of what I call the Columbo tactic, named after the famous TV detective, Lieutenant Columbo, who used questions in a very effective way to come in under the radar and finally get his guy. That's what we're after here. And you, you don't require your readers to smoke cigars or, or to wear a trench coat. <laughs> no, I don't. That is an added advantage, you know, but uh, <laughs> it is it is not required. Okay. Uh, the questions are required, though, because that's the key to his plan and the key to ours. Okay, this brings us to step three, and that is using questions to make a point, all right? Now, what Street Smarts does is it's like step three on steroids, right? Because here I go through a whole book dealing with different kinds of challenges that people are going to face, giving them the background information that will allow them to proceed in a conversation, but using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. What's necessary in this third step, though, is that if you're going to use questions, in this case, to expose a weakness or a flaw, that's the point you want to make, or to maybe parry a challenge, you have to know what the flaw is right. or the weakness. You have to know what the difficulty with the challenge is that they're offering you for you to parry it. 
Okay. So I spend lots and lots of time on a variety of different topics. I have two chapters on atheism. I have a chapter on the problem of evil. I have a chapter on difficulties people have raised against the Bible. I have a whole chapter on gender, marriage, and sex. Yeah. In any event, the challenges that come our way, we have to know how to unpack that challenge and see the error or the difficulty with it. Yeah, that's what I love about your material because you, I mean, a lot of the books that you read, especially in the world of apologetics, they're very thick tomes and it's helpful detail information, but sometimes people get overwhelmed. You help navigate a person through the conversation. That's right. For a long time, Zondervan wanted me to write a book on general apologetics. I thought, why? There's like a thousand of them out there, you know, that are excellent. But then I realized some of these issues I take on in a little different way than the rank and file. For example, in the chapter on the problem of evil, I don't try to solve the problem of evil. What I try to show is from a tactical or strategically at this point is that the problem of evil is not the problem for Christians that people think it is. It's actually a problem for atheists. Mm. And I show that. And then I give the next steps about the questions that you can ask uh, to lead into it. So it gives you that bridge from the content of the conversation or the scholarship to the relationship. And these are all things I've worked out over time in conversations with people on the air. And next month, I'll be speaking at the University of Louisville and the University of Kentucky. That's my 90 and 91st university that I've spoken at. And what I found is that there's a great liability, even when you know what's wrong with the challenge, Mm. to just kind of say it. Well, there's this and there's this and there's this, therefore you're wrong. Okay, because every time you take a piece of that line of thinking against their view and put it on the table, it invites them to take exception with it. Right. They don't want to give you any ground at all. Right. So what we're going to do is use their energy on our behalf. We're going to get them to put the pieces on the table that we need. And then when they put those chunks on the table, they can't take exception with what they've already affirmed. And see, this is what people are going to find in the dialogues themselves. Your initial questions that chart kind of a tactical path for them to launch out on a line of thinking and ask a few questions that will lay the foundation for getting to that answer that will put a stone in the other person's shoe. You say that the initial moves, you know, using that questions approach are gentle and non-confrontational, motivated by a genuine curiosity and a desire to understand. Do you think this is part of our problem today that many believers are not actually curious at all about the beliefs and ideas of their neighbors. Instead, they just sort of see them as a kind of project someone sets straight whenever they voice their opinion on religious and political matters. Yes, Shane, that's a great observation, especially with people who are really into apologetics. Mm -hmm. Those tend to be the more aggressive type who want to make this into a gladiator event. And of course, there is lots of that going on in the public arena now on spiritual issues and political issues. Who can draw the first blood and the most blood, you know, and this is not our project. Um, I'll just confess, it is my nature to want to do that. And early on when I was a Christian, I drew a lot of blood, um, but shedding more heat than light, actually. And I have learned that this is not the most effective way to go about doing this. And it's not honoring to God. Gentleness and respect is part of what we're told to exhibit when we're told to give an answer for the hope that's within us in that First Peter chapter 3 passage. Thank you. 
This part of my conversation with Greg reminded me of a time I went on a ski trip to Utah back when I was in high school. This was before I became a Christian, and as our bus drove past the impressive Mormon temple in downtown Salt Lake City, two of my Christian friends started telling me about some of the errors of Mormonism. Since I had been raised in a secular Jewish home, I responded by saying things like, come on guys, who's to say what's right or wrong in religious matters? But they proceeded to point out numerous places in the Book of Mormon that were essentially lifted straight out of the King James Bible. But the Book of Mormon was supposed to be an ancient North American text that had been written well over a thousand years earlier. So this actually piqued my interest and I recall looking through some of the books they brought with them. As I reflect back on this moment, it seems clear to me now that this was actually the first time I ever considered the possibility of an entire group of people being raised with a deceptive worldview. Well, after returning home from my ski trip, I resumed my normal routine, which included working part-time as a waiter at a restaurant in Orange County, California. And even though I still wasn't a Christian, I remember having a few interesting conversations with a fellow employee who happened to be Mormon. Now that I had read a few things about Mormonism, I wanted to share some of the disturbing facts that I had uncovered. But it didn't take long for me to realize that people don't really respond well to criticisms of their deeply held convictions. You see, all of us prefer to believe that which we already believe, and it's extremely difficult to convince a person that his or her worldview is false. But if you think about it, because there are so many conflicting beliefs out there, they simply can't all be true. Polytheism and monotheism are mutually exclusive. Theism and atheism rule each other out. So whatever your view, if you happen to be right, then all the other conflicting views out there are necessarily wrong. The problem, however, is that few of us are willing to consider the possibility that our basic assumptions about the world are false. We believe what we want to believe, not because we've thought deeply about the subject or have compared our views with other possible options, but simply because we like our beliefs and we've grown comfortable with them. Back to my conversation with my Mormon coworker, as I pointed out some of the factual problems associated with the Book of Mormon, I immediately began to recognize that this information wasn't being well received. Rather than engaging with or even disputing the claims I was making, my coworker simply decided to evade the issue altogether by shrugging off my comments and changing the subject. Now in my mind, I had unlocked and opened the door of her prison, but she simply preferred to stay in her cell. In hindsight, however, I've come to see that the issue is actually much more complicated. You see, I was a cocky 17-year-old who at the time thought all religion was basically a joke. Therefore, perhaps the reason my friend ended up changing the subject wasn't actually due to the fact that she simply wanted to believe what she wanted to believe. Perhaps it was because the way I approached the subject ended up ridiculing her entire belief system. In other words, maybe she chose to avoid the conversation simply because... I was being a jerk. This is why the kind of proceed with caution sign yeah. ought to be in the back of our mind every time we get in these conversations. If we make people angry or make them defensive, we lose. We're not going to be able to get them to consider things. But uh, this is why asking questions is so helpful. We have to navigate with care. We can't be acting like we're trying to look for a gotcha moment. 
the gotcha stuff, that's what we want to avoid because we don't want to embarrass people. We want to get them to think. You know, along those lines, you interact with one of the Apostle Paul's admonitions to Timothy when he says that believers are to be patient and kind toward their opponents, not quarrelsome. Because at the end of the day, raising your voice doesn't do anything to remove spiritual blindness. God's the yeah. one who grants repentance. Yeah, and I think people are going to find it. I certainly have learned this too. I go into these circumstances so much more relaxed. And by the way, if I don't know how to deal with something, I could just say, well, that's a good point. I haven't really thought about that. I have to give it some thought. And I also give the same freedom to other people. Yeah. I say, look, you don't answer to me. I just want you to think about what I said. Chew on that for a little while. Yeah. That's part of the gardening approach, no pressure. So there is a connected role between God's sovereign action with grace in people's lives and the way we go about doing our apologetics evangelism, our gardening, however you want to characterize it. Jesus, you know, when he sent his disciples on, you know, to various cities, he told them to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. That's right. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? Yes, it is. And this is where the shrewdness, I think, is going to come across when people read the kinds of dialogues that they see in street smarts. Because when people say to me, for example, they say, well, what about the problem of evil? Now, I have a lot I could say about that if I wanted to do the talking. Mm. But I just simply going to shoot back at them. What about it? Well, it's a problem for you, isn't it? Well, what's the problem? Now, of course, I know what the problem is they're probably getting at, but I want them to state it very clearly. And I'll just give you a little insight of how this works. There's the first two steps. Notice every time I'm just very relaxed, tossing the ball back into their court, let them talk. Tell me more. Tell me more. Because I know there's a big, giant ditch awaiting the atheist who is an atheist because of the problem of evil. In fact, there's a couple of big, giant ditches. Okay, so let me give you the insight first. And then I'll give you my sample dialogue that's in the book that help people to see how I take the insight and I apply it in this circumstance. The insight is this. And if I speak on the problem of evil to a secular crowd, I always start with this. What I tell the audiences at the outset is I understand why people would become an atheist because of the problem of evil. Because you think this is a theist problem, but it's not a theist problem. It's a human problem. And I approach the problem of evil not as a theologian or as a philosopher, and I have advanced degrees in both fields. I approach it as a human being trying to make sense out of my yeah. world. Okay. And what that means is if I become an atheist because of the problem of evil, I have not resolved the problem. I have just removed one potential way of solving it, and that is giving a theistic answer, all right? The problem still remains. And now I have to ask myself, with the worldview that I've adopted, atheism, materialism, what resources do I have not only to solve the problem of evil, but to even make the problem of evil coherent given materialistic, naturalistic, physicalistic atheism. The problem is you can't make that issue coherent because the problem of evil requires objective morality, transcendent morality above us that is violated for there to be the kind of evil that people complain about. Now, of course, that's a kind of transcendent morality that has no place in materialistic atheism. Right. It doesn't fit. It's like trying to put a carburetor on a computer. You know, There's no place for it to fit. So I'll just role model myself how the other person answers. Question, what about the problem of evil? What about it? Well, that's a problem for you. How is that a problem? Well, if your God is good and if he's powerful, then he'd be willing and able to get rid of evil, but they're still evil, so he doesn't exist. I say, okay, let's say you're right. Let's say there is no God because of the problem of evil. 
Okay, now God's gone. The things that you have just described a few moments ago that were evil in the world, sometimes I ask that question, what do you mean by evil? And then they give examples of it. Okay, do those things still happen? Yeah, of course they do. Are they still evil? Yeah, of course they're evil. That's why I don't believe in God, all these evil things. Okay, so help me understand then, how do you as an atheist make sense of the existence of evil in the world, given your worldview? I promise you, you may get one in 10 that have thought about this, but uh, most of them haven't because they haven't thought of it as a problem for them. Yeah, because for most atheists, the issue is stuff just is. It's matter in motion. Why would it be evil? It just is. Of course. That's what's consistent with their worldview. You might be familiar with the fairly well-known citation by uh, Richard Dawkins, where he says, this is the kind of world that you'd expect if there was no God. Yeah. No meaning, no purpose, no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Yeah. You probably know the quote. Okay. Well, that is consistent with atheism. He isn't consistent, though, when in God delusion, he begins to berate the God of the Bible as a misogynistic, homophobic, genocidal, evil God. Wait, 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 wait. How does this even match up? How, and yeah. this is another question that can be asked of the atheist. Where are you getting your moral standard that you are using to judge the God of the Bible as evil? Now, that's a question, and it's a trenchant question because this is going to be virtually impossible for them to answer because they have no standard that is inherent to atheism of morality that allows them to judge anything as immoral, okay? And so notice what happened. I know the problem, and those who read the book will be able to see it. It's not hard. And then I have asked the kinds of questions appropriate to set the stepping stones in place with the help of the atheist to then ask the final question that hopefully gets them thinking about the inadequacy of their own view to explain the world, especially the problem of evil. Yeah. You know, your approach sort of reminds me of one of the lines, I think, in the book of James, where he says, uh, let every person be quick to hear and slow mm. to speak, slow to anger. That's, right. uh, that's mm -hmm. not only a good advice when it comes to engaging with outsiders in apologetics-related conversations, but this is really important to remember even in our marriages, with our kids, and even people we may have strong disagreements with in our churches, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I uh, Sometimes people ask me, can I use this with my wife? You know, guys will ask that. And I said, well... In relationships and certainly in evangelism, we are trying to demonstrate that our view is correct because we're convinced that's the case. And this is often the case in, in marriages, you know. And uh, if you think of the first two steps, we're gathering information about what they mean, and we're gathering more information in the second step of why they think their claim is true. Now, with appropriate adjustments, those are really solid skills to have in a marriage. Especially if built into it is a real curiosity to understand the other person and along with that, clear listening <laughs> instead yes, of speaking. That's, right. that's where where I get right. tripped up is where I'm quick to speak and I'm talking over the other person. It's just not polite and it leads to you know things exploding. That's right. Yeah. This talking over someone, cutting them off, I call that being a steamroller. And even after, I'm just thinking myself personally, I have really pulled back my energy in my conversations about spiritual things. So I let people talk. I don't talk over them. I don't interrupt by and large. However, that is much more difficult to accomplish in a marital circumstance because the relationships are so much more meaningful yeah. to you. And you take the differences of opinion more 
more deeply, they're more mm-hmm. painful. And so we have to then really discipline ourselves not to talk over the other person. So the same rules apply, but they're just and the same advantages uh, fall to us if we use the approach in our close relationships, but they are harder to execute and apply. Maybe execute isn't the right word in this kind of context, <laughs> but it's it, it's just harder to do in these more emotionally charged relationships. Yeah. You have a chapter in which you call relativism the primal heresy. What do you mean by that? Well, what I'm trying to do in Street Smarts is I'm trying to help them understand the nature of the street. And there is an ethic that rules the culture right now. And it can be captured just in a couple of words, three words, because it's a slogan. You do you. You do you. That's it. It's a powerfully entrenched narcissistic commitment that's actually different than the do your own thing and uh, whatever turns you on and all that. Now this is taken on a metaphysical proportion. Identity is tied, authenticity is tied to the way you see yourself and being whatever it is, your mind determines you want to be. So Oprah at the uh, Oscars a couple of years ago made a statement about uh, you follow your own truth. Now here is everybody getting to their feet. They're plotting. They're weeping. They're thinking this is over. You do you. See, this is the ethic. Now, the irony is just a couple of years earlier, Harvey Weinstein was following his own truth. Mm. And doing himself, you know, but he was also doing a bunch of other people that launched the hashtag Me Too movement. Now, right. that wasn't okay, but he was doing what she said. So this shows the inherent contradiction that's in, entailed there. But it also demonstrates how the culture is so deeply committed to this narcissism. And now it's not just, you know, whatever turns you on, like the shallow self-centeredness of the 60s. Now it's metaphysical. Now it's kind of a an understanding of human identity and the way the universe is structured. So where did this all come from? And what I show is this goes all the way back to the garden, because in the garden, we have two things going on. We have God's truth about morality, what you ought to do and should not do, and God's truth about the nature of the world, the way he made it. Okay, that's all external. That's not internal. It's what's out there. That's not mind dependent. It's the way the world actually is. The way I characterize that is like gravity. Gravity is not mind dependent. I mean, if you quit believing in gravity, you're not going to float away, you know, kind of thing. So there is an external reality. Okay, now there's an internal life as well. What happened in Genesis chapter three is Adam and Eve, our first parents, said no to the external reality of God's values and God's world. And they said yes to the internal desires of their hearts. This is what matters. I see that fruit. It looks good to eat. It looks good to give me wisdom. I'm going to take it. Okay. So notice the truth they followed wasn't God's truth. That is the truth of reality. That's real truth. But it was their own truth of what was going on inside of them. Okay. I call that the primal heresy. And it's an exercise of human autonomy which is a denial of the external reality. And yeah. that inside-outside comparison, what's inside me, what's true on my inside compared to what's true on the outside, that is the distinction between relativism and objectivism. This becomes really clear as we think about issues related to gender and sexuality. Uh, so let's dive into the subject by talking, first of all, about pronouns. 
How do you think Christians should respond to those who request that we use a preferred pronoun that does not correspond to their biological sex? Okay, just a clarification. They don't request it. They demand it, mm. okay? Uh, and you know that, obviously, but uh, you were just nice in the way you put it. <laughs> but And this is part of the problem. It's not just a request. It's a demand. That means there are consequences when we don't go along with right. that. I want you to think about something else. About <clears throat> Pronouns are different from names. Names are first-person addresses. So I call you Shane. I don't call you, hey, he, hey, him. He, him pronouns are third-person references. They're references that we use regarding you when we're talking with others. And I think there's a different circumstance when we are talking about names and we're talking about third-person pronouns, okay? What I say in the book in Street Smarts, and that we've done a lot of thinking about this at Standard Reason, names are conventional. Names are conventional. Now, English names characteristically are attached to sexes, genders. And by the way, gender and sex, biblically, and up until just a few years ago, were synonyms. Right. That's why they call it, by the way, gender dysphoria. It's exactly. not sex dysphoria, right. though that's what it really describes. It's called gender dysphoria because even up till recently, and even with the use of that word, gender is considered synonymous with sex. It's their sexuality that they feel dysphoric about or uncomfortable about. But in any event, even though there are names that characteristically go with one sex or another, one gender or another, there is a flexibility. There's right. a lot of crossover. Okay, fine. People can choose whatever label they want to identify themselves as individuals. Right. So what we do is we think it's appropriate to honor that. So if uh, Allison wants to become Al, She's a woman, but she's going to be transgendered into a male, and so she wants to be called Al now. And I, I'm not going to call her Allison because that's going to be in her face, and it's just going to look mean-spirited. It doesn't accomplish anything good, and people should be called what they want to be called. But when it comes to gender, uh, I should say pronouns, pronouns are different. Pronouns are tied to sex. And some people wonder, well, what's the big deal? Why not just go along with the him, her, he, she, and all that and just play along? The reason uh, it's a big deal is for us is because it is a big deal in culture. Um, when somebody says in a third person kind of way that we want you to refer to that person by the gender they prefer, that's not about protecting the feelings of the other person. That's about conforming to a narrative. That's political at that point. And this is where I think we have to say, no, we're not going to do that. Okay, we have to draw a line in the sand somewhere and just say no, which, by the way, is what made Jordan Peterson famous. In case you're unfamiliar with Jordan Peterson, here's an audio clip in which the Canadian scholar takes a stand on this important issue. Just explain, Jordan, to those in the audience what it was yeah, well, the, the government the, of Canada the, tried The provincial to and Canadian governments in Canada mandated the use of personal pronouns and made it a criminal offense not to use them and there's been a variety of negative consequences of that. So just to clarify that point, if the government had made it a kind of voluntary thing, but with advice that that's what should happen, would you have gone along with that? Well, they've been doing that for years. Yeah. And, and look, I've dealt with all sorts of people in my life. I treat people very politely. If I'm dealing with someone reasonable, I address them in the manner that seems to be most appropriate to the social situation. So but as soon as the government decides that they have the right to decide what I have to say because of some false altruism on their part or some underlying and unexpressed ideology, then the answer to that is no damn way. Yeah. <laughs> 
At the University of Toronto, nobody in the world knew about him until he said no to this. And it became a big deal. And now he's famous for standing up to it successfully. Now right. he's got a lot of heat, but he's been an inspiration to other people as well. And so there's a way I teach in the book about how you might approach that. Um, for example, if somebody asks you what your preferred gender is, or I'm sorry, your preferred pronouns is the way they're going to ask it. If you're a Christian understanding the way reality is structured, you don't want to play along with the narrative. You're not going to give in. Don't just say my preferred pronouns are he, him, because that is playing along in the program. Right. That's your preferred pronouns. You've just relativized it for yourself. The better way to do it is to say, I don't have any preferred pronouns. I have a sex. I'm male. So now you've made a statement about your way of understanding this and implicitly communicated how they should address you. But you have communicated it in a way that does not buy into the narrative. All right. Now, this doesn't mean you're not going to get pushback, but this is where it's fair to say, wait a minute, what's the grounds for your pushing back so aggressively? And this is another indication about how this is political and totalitarian, which is why I don't think we should go along with it. Now, if somebody is saying, well, wait a minute, we want you to call them by this, that and the other. And, uh, you know, if you're in an educational system in schools and some very woke corporations, this could cost you a lot of pain to not go along. And uh, look, advice is cheap. I can say what to do because it's not going to cause me to suffer. And so you're going to have to make your own decision. But I think it's fair to push back. And I think it's fair to say to employers, can you tell me why I have to adopt your politics in order to work for your organization? Right. That's a very fair question. Let them explain. Now, they might say, well, it's not my politics. It's just what we're trying to do is make things easier for everybody. But this isn't making things easier for everybody. This is controversial and and this is divisive. And by the way, there's a whole lot of people that don't agree with that that are afraid to speak out on it because you're going to punish them. So I'm just asking you why. Sometimes they'll say, we want you to use these personal pronouns because it's it's just nice to other people. It's kind to other people. And that allows them to be authentic. And this is all part of the conversation, you know. My question is going to be, do you think authenticity is important? Oh, absolutely. So in other words, people should live in a way that is consistent with their own convictions. Is that right? Yes. Now, of course, they think you're talking about gender. Exactly. We're looking at the larger principle. So here's another step to that final point. Do you think that I should be true to my own convictions or do you think I should be a hypocrite? Good. Now, what are they going to say? That's your question. That's yeah. it. What else is there to say? They either see that or they don't. And if they don't like it and they still crow at you, then you say, well, all right, I'm going to be true to my own convictions and I'm going to be as gracious as I can to the other person, but I am not going to buy into your narrative because I think it's false. I think it's a false view of reality. Greg, a moment ago, you used the word totalitarianism, and this is something you actually talk about in your book. That's right. In fact, in one place you write that, quote, it's one thing for individuals to be confused about truth. It's quite another when an entire civilization is confused, a social malady abetted by government policy that frequently supports the death of truth madness and tilts the balance towards power, a creeping totalitarianism. Yeah. You know, there's a book out now, and maybe you've talked about it. Uh, it's called Live Not By Lies by uh, Rod Dreher. Yeah, Rod Dreher. Thank you. And it's not a very long book. It's easy read. And I've written a little bit about the trends towards totalitarianism that he talks about there. And it's not just hard totalitarianism from top down, so to speak, in the government. It's soft totalitarianism. All these enterprises that control our lives, like Google and Facebook and Twitter, and now big pharma and big corporations and all that, every, universities that have all gone woke. 
but now you see, and you've seen this certainly in the last year, an amalgam between these corporations that have the ability to influence you and control your lives and the government working with these organizations to do their dirty work for them. This is a very, very dangerous circumstance that we're facing. And it's no longer a creeping totalitarianism. It is a de facto totalitarianism at a low grade. Now, I spent time behind the Iron Curtain in 1976. I was in five different communist countries working with Christians who are suffering. I wrote about that two years ago called the Iron Curtain Diary. But I know what that's like. And now I see these things happening here in our country. And it's really, really unsettling because the same trends are in place. And I think Christians are going to have to work a lot harder at standing firm for the truth. If you can't stand against pronouns, how are you going to stand against something that's much more challenging? Yeah. Uh, a guest who was on this show not long ago at one point was at a college and he used the wrong pronouns and he was fired. Um, yeah. So these kinds of things do happen and they could get worse. Uh, what do you think Christians should do? How should we respond to this new reality? Should we become more vocal, more politically active? Should we pray more? All of the above. What do you think? Well, uh, there's certainly a sense in which all of the above is appropriate, but some people don't know what it looks like to be more active, you know, or activist. And, yeah. and that's difficult for some people. They're not even in a position to do that. Okay. Here's what Rod Dreher says. And and I think the book is really good because not only does he identify the, <clears throat> the difficulty and the creeping totalitarianism and stuff, and, and he's drawing on others the insight, especially those who suffered under the, the Soviet domination. I, I work with Cambodians also after the Cambodian Holocaust in 1982 in a refugee camp there in Thailand, just outside of the Cambodian border where they had escaped much of the same kind of persecution under the, under the Khmer Rouge and the Pol Pot at that time. And, and what Rod says is, and it's the title of his book is actually stolen, so to speak, from a title of a piece written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn yep. when he was ejected from the Soviet Union. And his piece was titled Live Not By Lies. And it's a good action piece. The first thing that we must commit to do is not to live according to lies. Okay. So the, the changes and resistance begin in our own personal life. Yep. Okay. Even, you know, activism is important and, and there's more things that are happening of a grassroots sort that are pushing back against the creeping totalitarianism we see both hard from the top down and, and soft from big corporations, Google, etc. Um, we got to just push back against that. Uh, if we're able, but we have to, in our own lives, live the truth out consistently. And Rod gives some good examples of what that looks like based on the behavior of those who live through it, uh, living in a totalitarian environment, suppressing their Christianity. Families got to get tighter. Christian communities have to get better. We had to get more theologically astute. We have to be more convinced of the truth of our convictions if we are going to stand by them and pay a price for them. Folks, before I wrap up this episode, I'd like you to listen to this segment from an interview I recorded a few years ago with Rod Dreher, just after he released his book, Live Not by Lies. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was probably the greatest dissident of the 20th century. He won the Nobel Prize. He was an enemy to the Soviet state. They sent him through the gulag. And... Um, he came out of there and wrote this amazing book called The Gulag Archipelago, which 
absolutely rocked the Soviet state and told the truth about what was happening in the Soviet Union. He was also a Christian. And uh, just before he was expelled by the Soviets in 1974, he sent out an essay to his followers telling them, look, we may not be able to overthrow this totalitarian regime, but the one thing all of us can do and must do is to live not by lies, which is to say, whenever we are compelled or the state seeks to compel us to nod our heads and say, yes, this is true to something we know is a lie, we have to refuse no matter what it costs us because the whole regime is upheld by lies, by everybody being afraid to say what they know is true. And uh, Solzhenitsyn said that if we don't do this, if we don't live in truth, no matter what it costs us, then we're surrendering our integrity and costing ourselves our souls. We have to be prepared to suffer for the truth for the sake of our own integrity, even if it can ultimately do no good to overthrow the regime. When it comes to the harder forms of totalitarianism, you say that it's difficult for people raised in the free world to grasp the breadth and depth of the lying required simply to exist under communism. All the lies and the lies about the lies that formed the communist order were built on the basis of this foundational lie that the communist state is the sole source of truth. That's actually the kind of language you find among cult leaders, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And thank God we don't have a situation quite like that here where all, all the authority is concentrated in the hands of the state. I think it's what's going to happen here is all the authority is going to be concentrated in the hands of a governing elite that includes uh, state leaders, political leaders, but it also includes corporate leaders, right. leaders of institutions like media, universities, and so on and so forth, who all share this woke ideology, uh, this anti-Christian ideology, and will keep pumping it out through social media, through entertainment, and so on and so forth. And they will make it so that any dissent becomes impossible. This is how it happens over and over. And this is how totalitarianism works. People come to love Big Brother by having it come to them throughout the, the frameworks, the things that give their lives meaning and stories that give their lives meaning. Right. And so they, they use language of totalitarians and they use things like this thing's happening in, in corporations to make it impossible even to conceive of disagreeing. Yeah. In fact, one person you interviewed said that dictatorships can make life hard for you, but they don't want to devour your soul. Totalitarian regimes are seeking your souls. That doesn't sound merely like an alternative religion or worldview. That sounds demonic, actually. Yeah, yeah. I don't like to resort to this kind of language to talk about ordinary political and cultural realities. Right. Nevertheless, when I look at the sort of things that are happening now, and, and it becomes really, really frightening to realize we really are dealing with principalities and powers here. And I think so many well-meaning Christians don't understand what's happening because no faithful Christian wants to treat a, a gay person or a transgendered person cruelly. But at the same time, you would be a very poor Christian indeed and a cowardly Christian if you were quiet about what you know truth is yeah. because you were afraid. But I, I write about in the book how this great thinker, Philip Reif, he was a secular Jewish thinker, uh, he really understood the ideology of our time as being something broader than just left versus right. It was something that encompassed both left and right. Reef said that we live in a world where the therapeutic has triumphed. 
he said that the Bible had gone away and it had been replaced by a therapeutic culture, a culture that didn't claim that there was right and wrong. There was only um, serenity, inner serenity and anxiety. And so truth became whatever made you feel good, yeah. whatever made you feel at home in your own body and at home in society. Reef said that this was going to be terrifyingly destructive. He said that this was a more profound revolution than even the Bolshevik revolution. Wow. Because even the Bolsheviks had a concept of ultimate right and wrong, however flawed it was. But right and wrong in the therapeutic society, it doesn't exist. All that exists is our feelings. And uh, Reef said in 1966, he said the sexual revolution would be a major component of advancing this. And he said that religious leaders in America don't see it happening, but it has already made major inroads into their religious institutions. Hmm. If you look at what's going on in American religion right now, it is collapsing. Among uh, the millennials and Generation Z, we have an absolute collapse, not only of Christian faith itself, institutional Christian faith, but of any sort of concept of what it means to be Christian. One thing I happen to be convinced of at the present moment is the unsettling fact that the world seems to be doing a better job at making disciples than Christians are. Perhaps things will get better, or perhaps they'll get worse. But in the meantime, all of us need to get more intentional about what we believe, why we believe it, and why it matters. We also need to get more intentional about how we pass on the faith to our kids and how we share the good news with our neighbors. Folks, if you'd like to read more on this topic, I'll include links to Greg Kokel's new book, along with other related resources in the show notes. While you're there, you can also find information about a conference we'll be hosting here in the St. Louis area this coming spring, featuring Greg Kokel, Jeremy Smith, and myself. If you're a fan of the show, please help me to get the word out by sharing episodes with others and by leaving a positive review. If you have the ability, please also consider upgrading to a paid subscription via Substack or by putting a few bucks in the tip jar. Later this week, I'll be releasing an article exclusively for my supporters and paid subscribers related to the topic of this episode. And so if you'd like to receive this piece, you can simply make a gift of any size by heading to the show notes, which you can find at HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. 